All right, well, listen, let's uh, find our sermon outlines. Maybe you picked one up on the way in. Maybe you've got one on your app there. You do. Uh, Let's find our way to Matthew chapter 22, please, verses 41 through 46. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. If you're using the Book Rack Bible, which we hope you will, and we hope more than anything that you bring a Bible when you come to church. Now, maybe you have it on your phone or device, but you have a scripture that you look to and that you're... uh, Uh, familiar with and that you're working your way around and making notes in your own Bible, uh, that's great. But the Book Rack Bible right in front of you, page 1536, is where you will find the text we're going to be studying today. We're going to learn some amazing truth today about who Jesus is. And there's nothing more important in life than to know who He is. And here's the great news. He desires you and me to know who He is. And everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Right or wrong, everyone has an opinion about him. I've learned as I go through my life, I meet people all the time, and people are often quick to say what their opinion about Christ is. And sometimes there's shades of truth, but it's not all the way there. Sometimes it's all truth, and you just know that they're following Christ, or they're following the the, the Scriptures, what the Bible reveals about Jesus Christ, and sometimes it's completely 100% wrong. And so today we come to an amazing text about how to know what's really true about Christ. Uh, This text that we come to today comes to the end of a short section we've been looking in Matthew, started in chapter 21, where Jesus had to field some hard questions. And he's been rapid fire receiving the questions, and for the last four or five weeks, we've been unpacking the answers to those questions. But today, the tables turn. Today, Jesus goes to the religious leaders with a question of his own. It's a question that we might even hear him say to us today in terms of where we are and understanding who he is. So with that in mind, let's read the text and see what we can learn from it, beginning in verse 41. While the the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> All right, so the tables have turned. All the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests and, and those who were the experts of the law had been grilling Jesus, trying to find a place to stump him. And Jesus walks in to their little meeting, and he just stumps them all. And the amazing thing about this story is, in this little narrative that we're reading today, is that Jesus starts with a really simple question, but it goes really deep from there, and that's what we want to unpack this morning. Here's what we're going to learn in this little text today. We're going to learn a little bit about what, who Jesus is, and then we're going to see in the second movement what it takes to know who he is. And then finally, we're going to see what happens when you come to terms with who he is. And I hope this will bless your heart today. Lots to unpack here. Let's begin with verses 41 and 42, where I see in this little passage that there's a big difference between knowing things about Jesus and knowing 
who he is. Would you agree with that? There's a huge difference between knowing things about Jesus and knowing who he is. And so the Pharisees are gathered together, and I love how Jesus just sort of shows up, comes into them, and, and they don't expect him, but there he is. And he asks them a question, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Messiah that is coming? He asks the question, whose son is he? Now, let's just stop here for a moment and realize how simple this question is. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being simple, 10 being difficult, this is way less than a one for the group of people that Jesus is talking to. I mean, this would be like asking a graduate level mathematics professor, what is the sum of one plus one? It would be like asking a three cross person that is a member of our church, what is the purpose of our church? I mean, you just have it. You just know it. I mean, to ask this question of this group of people, these experts of the law, these religious leaders, was something so fundamental because every Jewish person living in Jesus' day day, knew that the greatest king of Israel, who was David, had one day been promised a son to sit on his throne forever. Now, in our Bibles, we find this, and I'm going to just rehearse a little bit with you this morning. We're heading soon into the Advent season, and we're going to do a little preview of that this morning by thinking about the promise that David received from Nathan the prophet. We'll put it on the screen just to save you a little time in finding it, but it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and there in that passage, the prophet Nathan says to David, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your father's I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Now, this is God speaking through Nathan. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if you have read that passage, you know the history of Israel, you know that what's interesting about this, and this is what's so cool about prophecy, that there's a toggling back and forth between David's immediate heir, which would be his son Solomon, who would build the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord. David wanted to build it, and God said no, and he comes to David with Uh, through the prophet Nathan, to tell him this, no, your son, your heir is going to build me a house. But as you read the prophecy, you read words like, and he will reign on your throne forever, okay? And so we know, this is the cool thing about prophecy, that there's an immediate fulfillment oftentimes in prophecy, but there's an ultimate fulfillment. There's a, there, there's a timeless or a, a prophetic fulfillment. And so David is hearing about his immediate heir here in 2 Samuel 7, but also about his ultimate or future heir. Uh, there's, a, there's a historic fulfillment, but a prophetic fulfillment that is in view. Now, we see this all over Scripture. Let's go, and we'll put this on the screen, too. This is Psalm 89, verses 35 and 36. And there in Psalm 89, we have the writer say, Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will will not lie to David, that his line will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. And these are just, I'm giving you just little snips of many places in the Old Testament record where we have the reminder to God's people that David would have a son and that that son would reign on David's throne forever. Now, a very popular and more known 
uh, verse that would connect with this is where we're coming into Advent and the Christmas season. We're reminded of what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Remember, he said, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, so as you start reading those words, you realize, okay, this cannot be, this cannot be just David's physical heir. This can't be just Solomon or one of David's sons because of the terminology being used here. Verse 7, watch this, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. How in the world is this going to happen? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so God's people, Israel, the Jewish people for millennia have been watching and waiting for this promise to come to fulfillment. And we remember when David died, the grand scheme of David's kingdom is sustained for a short period of time through Solomon, his son, but it isn't long until after this that under Solomon's reign, the kingdom is divided. We've got northern Israel, southern Israel known as Judah. We've got 11 tribes in the north, uh, one tribe in the south. We've got uh, excuse me, uh, 10 and 2 actually, if you're being really exact about it. And you've got this, this civil war that begins and apostasy and hundreds of years of trial and problems and drifting away from God until God sends judgment on His people north and south. He sends the nation of Assyria in and demolishes the northern kingdom. Later, the, uh, the Babylonian kingdom who takes over Assyria and then takes the southern kingdom. And God's people are whisked away into captivity. Seven decades pass more uh, craziness in the history of God's people, and then 400 years of silence where God's people don't hear anything until this amazing little ray of light through a man named John the Baptist who steps up on the scene of history and begins the prophetic announcement of the Lamb of God who is coming to take away the sins of the world. The Messiah is coming, and, and John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. So for all these years, people, so you can imagine Jesus walking into this room, a little background, all that to, just to remind us of the context here, and he asks these guys, he says, okay, about the Christ, whose son is he? Duh! I mean, you can almost picture these guys looking around the table like, is this the best shot he's got? I mean, he thinks he's going to stump us with this? I mean, we know who the... Who the, who the son is. We know that David is the father, that we know that the son, the Messiah is going to come from David's line. Now here's what I want to just zero in on for a minute. Listen, people who have had some exposure to Jesus usually know something about him, right? The religious folks of Jesus' day knew that Messiah would be a direct descendant of the king of David, uh, King David. They knew they could give facts, they could utter facts. I've learned that religious and even not so religious people today know things about Jesus too. I mean, if you ask people out on the street, a lot of people can tell you that Jesus had earthly parents named Mary and Joseph, or that he was born in a little town called Bethlehem and raised in a little area known as Nazareth, or that he was reported to have done miraculous things, or that he made astonishing claims, or that he served the poor and the marginalized, or that he commanded his followers to love God with their heart, soul, strength, and mind and love their neighbor as themselves. A lot of people know these kinds of things about Jesus. 
They know that he was betrayed by his own people and followers and condemned to death by Rome and that he died on a cross and that he was reported to have risen from the grave. There are countless people in our culture and our community who know these things about Jesus. I, I know a Jewish person, a Muslim person, a, a person who's known as a Sikh who is a religious uh, a follower of, of a different, you know, offshoot of, of an Eastern religion. Uh, I know an atheist. All of them who I've had conversations with who have told me these very things about Jesus. People know things about Jesus. Every person on planet Earth has an opinion about Jesus. But watch this. Before we get off that point, I, I was also thinking, I don't have it in my notes, but I think about this, that there's also a lot of folks who don't know anything about Jesus. Of, of the 16,000 people groups in our world, 16 point whatever, 1,000 people groups in the world, not nations, but people groups. There's people groups in nations all over the world. Watch this. Of all of those people groups, 6,700 people groups do not have a credible witness for Jesus Christ. That means there's no organized church under the gospel. There's, it would be very, very difficult for these 6,700 people groups to hear anything about Jesus. And they comprise three point something billion people in our world. And that strikes me because here we are in a place where there's an immersion of the gospel. You don't have to go very far if you're looking to find the truth about Jesus Christ, and while everyone has an opinion, there are some people in the world who have never even heard the name Jesus. And, and that, I hope that stirs us. I hope, I hope that's why when we hear about missions projects and where we come alongside of partners in other countries that are dealing with people groups who don't know who Christ is, that we're willing to give above and beyond, that we're willing to do sacrificial things so that people will hear about and have the opportunity to worship Jesus Christ. And that means for some of us, not just giving money, but it actually means going and setting up tent-making ministries. That means finding another career in a place, yes, in a place where the Christian witness is dismal and grim and there's no opportunity apart from someone like you that might carry the witness of Christ into these places. I don't know who's listening. I don't know what God's doing. And, you know, we can just say, Lord, help us, help all of us to figure out what you're saying to us about this great need in the world. But, okay, and I shouldn't say but because that's, that's bigger than really anything that we're talking about here this morning. Knowing basic things about Jesus' earthly life, however, is, is often as far as it goes for most people. I've, I've learned this, I've seen this, where people sort of like the rhetoric, like to talk. You know, have you noticed lately uh, about how news analysts are talking about the, can, you know, the pre presidential candidates? And how they know everything about these people. And, and yet, really, do, do any of them even know these people? No. They, they know things about them, but they don't really know them. I mean, it's the same way in the sports world, how people, you know, you can watch ESPN or SportsCenter or something, and, and these analysts are always talking about these athletes as if they're like best friends, they know everything about them. They know what they're thinking. They know what they're doing. They know what they're frustrated with. And do they even know these people? They don't know anything. They know things about them, but they don't know them. 
You ask one of those athletes that they're talking about, hey, do you know about who? You know, they don't know the person. And so it's the same way spiritually. While we have our opinion uh, about Christ, this is usually about as far as it goes. I engage with people on spiritual matters. I hope you do too. And often I hear things like this. Oh, 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 I know what you mean. Hey, hey, I was an altar boy. <laughs> or or oh, my dad was a, a pastor. Or, or my mom sang in our church choir. As if these kinds of default statements provide some kind of credential for whatever their current opinion about Jesus is. Like, I know all that stuff. I, you know, I went to Sunday school. I, I know all that stuff. My, my great-great-grandfather was a, a Christian man. <laughs> okay. As if, you know, push away from the table. There's no more discussion. My opinion is firm. It's like, don't confuse me with anything more. I, I, I want to sit with what I believe. Nothing more is needed. And that might be someone here today. You may be here and you've got your opinion about who Christ is and and it's, it's like, listen, listen to Jesus actually coming into a room where you are and saying, hey, what about the Christ? Whose son is he? Looking at you, do you really know who he is? Or do you just kind of bank on the facts? There can be a lot of people in churches just like this who are very comfortable with some facts that they know about Jesus. But if you really drill down, do you really know this God? Do you really know him? Do you really know him? Um. Which brings us to the second movement, uh, which kind of things heat up a little bit. Uh, which I find, Verses 43 through 46, knowing who Jesus really is uh, requires our eyes being opened by the truth of God's word. Uh, if you're, this is a deal. It's not, it's not your background. It's not your uh, exposure necessarily. There's something critical that Jesus points to here in terms of how a person can come to the right side of knowing who Jesus is. And in verse 43, Jesus now, he goes from the simple to the very profound. He's going to jump, he's going to go from mathematics, one, you know, one and one, one plus one, to quantum, you know, theory of mathematics. He's, I don't even know what that means. I'm not a, <laughs> is that even a statement? I don't know. I, I know some people that are amazing mathematicians, and, and I'm just saying that this is, this is going from the simple to the Hugely profound statement. How is it, verse 43, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies, till I put your enemies under your feet. And here comes the question, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Uh, in our culture, uh, there's, there's a rite of passage that happens, you know, where where sons become greater than their fathers. Um, uh, I, it's a silly little illustration. I play basketball a few times a week, and one of the guys that plays, he's, he's a younger guy than I am. He's in his 40s, and he has a son who's in his 20s. And his son occasionally comes and plays. And he's, you know, he's a good athlete, his son. His father's a good athlete, and he's kind of following the footsteps of his father. And one day, this last summer, we were out there playing, and his son, Kirk's son, Gabe, was there, and and Gabe comes down, and Kirk's kind of guarding him. They guard each other, you know, because it's, it's important for the fathers to establish who the father is. And so Gabe comes down and literally dunks on his father, over his father. And I remember seeing this text that came from Kirk later. I don't know if you're here this morning, Kirk, but it's, a, it's such a funny text. He goes, the universe has changed. Uh, 
Oh, there's Kirk right there. Hey, Kirk. <laughs> I love that. I mean, your son is just, he has now, can I say this humbly, he has now surpassed you. Now, in that area, now, now he's still got a lot of things to learn because his dad is a great ball player, but there's a point in which in all things in life, our sons and daughters, uh, they pass us up, Right? But in, I say that story to say the opposite in the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, the son never supersedes. In Jewish culture, the son is never greater than his father. It's only, he's always subordinate to the father. And it's only when the father passes that the son then takes the mantle. So, Kirk, you're okay for a while, okay? It's only until the, the, son, uh, until the father passes that the son becomes uh, greater in Jewish culture. So this is a very profound question when he asks the question of whose son is he? And why, if he's the son, why then does David call him his Lord? Now, Jesus is quoting from a psalm here. I want you to take your Bibles. I want you to see this with your own eyes. If you have your Bible or your device, go to Psalm 110, please. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one of the most clearly messianic psalms we have in the Psalter, the entire Psalter. And Jesus uses the first two verses of this psalm to pose the question to these religious leaders. And I want you to see it right there in your Bible, just like I am also getting there right now. In Psalm 110, okay, are you there? Say amen. Okay. The Lord, and this is right out of Matthew 22, but I want you to see it in Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If you gaze down through the psalm, it's only seven verses, you can see all of this is talking about the Messiah who has come. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. The Lord, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This was also prophetic, that the Messiah would be of a kingly priest background. Not just king, but he would be priestly as well. And, and so this Psalm 110 is like this nugget, this jewel sparkling about this king, this righteous priest king that was going to take his place as sovereign over God's people and as a, a from the line of David. Now, what I want to show you about this psalm in verse 1 is that in my Bible, the first word Lord, the first Lord there is in all caps. Is that way in your Bibles too? Okay, and that's, we did a study on this, the proper names of God. This is the Jehovah name of God. Anytime you see all capital letters in your English Bible, I, I think usually NIV does this, NASB does this, uh, it shows that this is speaking of the name Jehovah or Yahweh. This is God's covenant name with his people. But then he uses, he says, notice the next word, Lord, is in lowercase. The Lord says to my Lord. And this is the word that we translate uh, Adonai. It's, it's the word that also is only used to describe divinity, God. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the word Adonai also is a name of God. It means sovereign master or Lord the one to whom I should submit my life to. So here, listen, so here you're actually getting this, this 
intimate conversation within the Godhead where we actually eavesdrop on something God the Father is saying to God the Son here in verse 1. This is an allusion to what other places in Scripture talk about the one sitting at God's right hand, like in Ephesians 1.20 or Philippians 2.9, that God gave him a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus and, and Isaiah, uh, excuse me, uh, Ephesians 1.20 is, is the exaltation of Christ as well. Notice first that David writes the Lord, which is, again, Jehovah, and then he writes this word Adonai. And by Jesus quoting this here in Matthew 22, we have a beautiful reminder to us that not only is Jesus ascribing David's words to the Spirit, meaning that this is Scripture that David is saying back in Psalm 110, but that he's also showing us that David's son is also David's Lord. Wow. Now that's where, if they were, you know, listening to what Jesus said there, that's where their minds went, you know. Because this informs us, watch this, that the general feeling of the Jewish people in Jesus' day about who Messiah was, was way too small. They were thinking of the Messiah as only one who would come and overthrow Rome, not one who was actually sovereign over all things. You see, this is a, a beautiful reminder to all, all of us, too, because the Jewish people had their, their issue was all on the Romans. Their focus was not on the kingdom of God or His sovereign rule in their lives. And that's just, you can extrapolate that. There's a lot of us today who, who look at Jesus as only sort of like our cosmic rescuer, you know? Who, God, give me a better job. Where are you, God? God, I'm in trouble in my marriage. Where are you? Is that why Jesus came to this earth? To give us a better life? No! He came to give us a new life. He came to be sovereign over all things. That's why we can worship Him with our hearts. That's why we bow before Him and say, God, there's no one like you. And our view, some of our views is so small about Jesus. These, this Muslim friend, this atheist friend, this Sikh friend, all can just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, Jesus, yeah, I know things about Jesus. No, you don't, you don't know anything about Jesus. You, you don't know that He is the sovereign ruler of the entire universe. And that God said in, his, in this conversation within the Godhead, God said, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is a picture of the, the reigning power and the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're taking notes, when our eyes have been opened to what God's Word reveals about Jesus... We see who he is. And here's what we see. Verse 42, we see that he's human. He's David's son. He came as a human. We, we and oftentimes, we, we sort of diminish the humanity of Christ. It's a critical doctrine of our faith. We believe that Jesus, God's son, came as a human being, not as a phantom, not as pretend, not as a spirit being, but as one fully human. He took on human flesh, born of flesh, and we see this all over the Scriptures. New Testament, we're going to spend a lot, of this time, a lot of this in our Advent series, so I won't go to it now, but the humanity of Jesus is huge. 
He knows what you're feeling right now. He knows exactly what you're going through because he took on flesh. When you're tempted, he knows what temptation's like. You can, you can look to him and find escape and, 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 and victory because he, he knows what all of that's like. But not only do we see that he's human, basically, essentially, verse 43 and 44, we know that we see that he's also God. He's David's Lord. He's God. Listen, this is where God's work is needed to open our eyes. And God uses his word, the scriptures, to do this. That's why I love giving scriptures out to people. Uh, the other week, I went out with our, our seed planting ministry. Um, and, and, and you don't know, maybe uh, second and fourth sun, uh, Sundays of every month, uh, our seed planters go out. And this is what they do. They carry scriptures, little scripture tracks, and they go to public areas where lots of people are. And I've been wanting to go with them for a while. I love Guillermo and, and Lisa Giannis, and they organize this. And there's a small group. I don't know. The day we went, there was maybe, I don't know, 10 of us, 11, 12, I don't know. There was a f uh, just a few handful of people. But I would encourage you to think about the beauty of this. And here's what happened. It's just that we're once again beautiful reminder. We walk up to people and just in friendly, we went out to the marina park there right, you know, in San Leandro where the bay is and it was a beautiful day and there are lots of people picnicking and, you know, today maybe there won't be as many people out there, but I don't know if they're going today. Second, anyway, um, we just walk up to people and give them a little scripture and, and encourage them to read it when they have time to read it and, and just kind of see what happens. Some people want to engage with, oh, what's this? And they just sort of opened up a little bit and so we would go further. We would share our testimony or share a little bit about who Jesus is. Just a beautiful, I know it feels threatening. It's, it's a little bit threatening to walk up to people and, and you know, everybody's loaded with these expectations, oh, you know, don't come and invade my space, but when done graciously and loving for the most part, people are just so generally open and thankful. But here's the beautiful thing. You give out the, all these little scripture tracks, and we walked all the way through the marina green there, and all the way down, there's a little walking trail that goes along the bay there, and hand them out. A couple young guys, teenagers, just stood and talked with us for a while and received the scriptures. And then we're walking back, and just all over this park, you see people, and I've got one of these because this is one of the things we had, this little Gospel of John, and you see people just, just reading, just reading. And I think, how beautiful, they're reading Scripture. Now, the day when they showed up at the park that day, they, I, I'm sure they had no idea that they would be reading Scripture. And all I want to say about that is that if you can get someone's eyes on Scripture, You've got, you've got a, a fighting chance to see the Spirit of God begin to work in their hearts. You know, people don't need just nice talk and friendliness. Let's be friendly, but they need Scripture. That's why we believe in the Word of God. That's why I carry these things everywhere I go. I, I look for every day an opportunity to give somebody the Gospel of John. And, I, you know, I learned this. I told the story a while back, you know, that I learned this from somebody who just used that as a trigger when they met someone named John. They'd say, oh, did you know that your name is written after, you know, or you, your name is in the Bible? Oh, really? Well, I just happen to have, you know, and so, <laughs> I mean, that works. But, you know, it also works for Matthew. It works for Mark. It works for <laughs> Titus, Gomer. <laughs> I don't know. I'm being silly. But the point is, the point, how, okay. Who is Jesus? He's, he's the son of David. 
How do, how do we see who he really is? We see who he really is through what Scripture says about him. He's human. He's God. Now, what happens? What happens when you see who he is? This is what the text shows us. Uh, coming to terms with who Jesus is leads to two responses. If you're taking notes, this will be quick. Verse 46, some people shut down. Some people shut down. No one, notice in the text, no one says a word. Why? Because the conclusion meant that Jesus was who they were claiming he wasn't. They heard what he said and couldn't argue with him about it, so what did they do? They shut down. Here's what I've learned. Conviction doesn't necessarily lead to conversion. There are a lot of people that when they hear about Jesus and they see it, boom, God shows them. He shows them in the Word. He shows them who Jesus is. They shut down. No one after that asked Jesus another question. That's, that's not necessarily a good thing. Now, Jesus is doing his work, and there are going to be people that are going to shut down. Now, the text doesn't show it, but I've also, and you know this too, that not only do some people shut down, but some people, ready for this? Bow down. <laughs> now, it doesn't show us here, but we've been seeing this all the way through Matthew's gospel, and this is why Matthew's writing this gospel, so that people will bow down to their king. Remember we said when we started this series a couple of years ago, the whole purpose of Matthew was to show that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the rightful heir. He's the one we can worship with full abandon because we know who he is. He is son of God. He has come to take away the sins of the world. In Acts 2.36, when Peter stood before that throng of people, he preached that this was Jesus who came to die and rise again to give them life. And all through the New Testament, the writers record over and over that this Jesus who came in human flesh and died for our sins and rose again from the grave is the one worthy of our worship. And if we will believe in our hearts that he is Lord, confess with our mouth that he is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And his message of salvation and invitation has gone out through the whole earth. And if there's anyone here right now who has seen who Christ is, you don't have to shut down. You can bow down and you can give him your life. Jesus, in Revelation 22, I am the root and offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. And that's why we worship him. That's why it's so beautiful to come before him. And this morning, if you've never opened your heart to Christ, now is the moment for you. Let's go to the Lord right now.